But understand, apologetics is seen in the New Testament. It's not just proving things like the existence of God. Largely, it's taking the scriptures and reasoning from the scriptures that Jesus is indeed the Son of God, the Messiah, the only one who can save. Listen, you can believe the Bible is the Word of God, but what good is it if you can't use it? Welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy, Senior Pastor of Community Bible Church in Beaufort, South Carolina. Today is part two of Pastor Carl's sermon entitled, Calling Men to Christ. As we pick up in John chapter 1, verse 41 today, where Andrew finds his brother Peter and testifies to the fact that Jesus was the long-awaited Messiah, it is here that we see one of the many ways people are introduced to Christ through the testimony of others. Now we have seen already that it is the Word of God that brings about conversion, but it is the men and women of God that can bring that Word. Let's join Pastor Carl now as he continues. You know, I meet cultists, met some recently at my door. Why they come to my door, I thought they'd have it marked out a long time ago. <laughs> and this guy said, oh, but I had this warm feeling in my bosom. And he gave me the old warm feeling and the bosom testimony. And I said to him, like I say to so many of my Mormon friends, I said, your testimony means nothing to me. And I said it loving, but it means nothing to me. I said, your testimony and your feeling is no more credible than the feeling a Buddhist gets or someone who is involved in transcendental meditation. It's not authoritative. Only the scripture found in the 66 books of the Bible is credible. And once we get a hold of that truth, that the primary testimony that we are to share is not our own because your testimony can save no one. Faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of God. You have been born again, not of perishable seed, but imperishable seed through the living and abiding word of God. It doesn't depend on your testimony or my testimony. Faith depends on the testimony of scripture. That's what John preached. And that's what the preacher is to preach. Every pastor, every deacon, every elder, every Christian is to open the word of God and to say what God has plainly said. The text here says they heard him, they heard John. And they followed him. They followed Christ. They heard the testimony built on Scripture, and they followed the Lord Jesus. Faith depends on that kind of testimony. Now, notice, interestingly, the response that Jesus gives in verse 38. When they begin to follow him, he says, what do you seek? That is, what do you want? And they said to him, Rabbi, which translated means teacher, where are you staying? It seems a rather strange response. Jesus asks, guys, what are you looking for? And they say, Jesus, where do you live? Why do they respond like that? Because that kind of question demands some thought for you to give an answer. So they say, Lord, where are you staying? Where are you living? We can give you an answer after we think about it and spend some time with you. By the way, this is an issue of motivation. That's what he's going to. He's going for their motive. What is it that motivates you to come to a church like this? Is it because it's a, a growing church and it's a great place to meet people and make social contacts? That's why some people come. Is it because um, uh, it's a good place to build a business? We've had a lot of folks, they, they recognize us, oh, the largest church in town. I'll go there and I'll build my multi-level marketing business. And that's their whole motivation for coming. What's your motivation? Why have you decided to follow Jesus Christ? 
So the Lord asked him, what do you seek? He's asking a very probing question. Now, his response is so neat. Verse 39, he said to them, come and you will see. They came therefore and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. That is four o'clock in the afternoon. And so uh, they stayed with him, the Bible says, for that day. This is about the time of Passover. You go to the latitude where Israel is this time of year in March, April, when Passover takes place. They stayed with him while there were daylight hours, about four in the afternoon. They had about four hours with the Savior. They heard John's testimony, but they wanted to hear what the Savior had to say. Can you imagine that being in the presence of, a sa of the Savior? A few months back, myself and about 100 preachers, for an hour, we were in the presence there in the White House of the President of the United States. And he spoke to us for over an hour. I said, oh, this is wonderful. But he's just a man. This is the Savior. This is the Lord God of the universe, and they are in his presence. And as we'll see in a moment by their testimony, they are changed. All right, that's how Andrew and John were called to Christ. They initially heard the preacher preach, public pulpit preaching, as we might call it. But that's not the only way people find Christ. In addition to pulpit evangelism, there's what we call sometimes friendship evangelism, which brings us to the calling of Simon Peter. Look at verse 40 as the narrative switches gears. One of the two who heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. Now, please notice what he did. He found first his own brother, Simon Peter. Now, here is a brother going to talk to a brother. And of course, that's very normal and natural for you to have a burden for those closest to you, for those whom you love very, very deeply. Now, sometimes when we think of these guys, we think of them in subhuman terms. But based on the narrative here, this is very human, and I don't want you to miss it. Uh, they, they were with the Savior, Andrew and John, until about evening, until it was dark. And Andrew can't wait. He goes to Peter's house. It's the same day. It's not the next day yet. It's dark outside. Peter, we know from the Gospels, is married. He knocks on the door, and Peter probably thinks, who in the world is that? Is this hour at night? And he opens the door. He doesn't say, St. Andrew, why callest thou? <laughs> no. Uh, he probably says, Andy, what you doing here? What's up, bro? And he says, we found him. Who'd you find? We have found the Messiah, which translated John says means Christ. Now, remember, it's a universal gospel. He's writing to Jew and Gentile alike. And throughout this work, he will drop these little explanatory terms because he knows everyone who is reading it is by no means Jewish. And the word Messiah, Messiah in the Hebrew, Christos in Greek, they're identical terms. They mean the same. The anointed one in both languages. And it's a title. It's not like Jesus Christ, Carl Brogy. No, it's Jesus the Christ, like Carl the pastor. It's a title. And Andrew knew for sure that the one who had been spoken of and prophesied in the Old Testament, that they had found him. You can't believe the excitement at this door that they experienced that night. These guys were disciples of John the Baptist. They had been looking for the Messiah. They knew the approximate time frame set up in Daniel 9 as spoken of by the prophets. They were expecting him, and they say, we found him, and we know where he's living. 
Peter doesn't say, well, it's pretty late, Andrew. Let's go tomorrow. And I'm going to bed. No, let's go right now. And he goes over there with Andrew. By the way, there's not a whole lot written about Andrew in the New Testament. But every time we meet Andrew, we find him bringing someone to Christ. We'll see that in chapter 6 when he brings a little boy to Christ, which says a lot about him because he's able to get in that boy's lunch pail. Uh, when we come to the 12th chapter, we're going to find him bringing Greeks to Jesus, a Jew bringing Gentiles to the Savior. Now, repeatedly, he's identified Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. Some people think, well, they lived in the shadow of Simon Peter. But here's a man who was an apostle in his own right because he had such a heart for God, habitually bringing people to the Savior. He's a great man. And he says, Simon, we have found the Messiah. And so the two of them go to see Christ. Maybe your brother had a part in bringing you to the Savior. My oldest brother, Richard, was instrumental. Like Andrew, he first found Christ and he began to witness to me. And uh, he couldn't articulate his faith clearly, but he said, Carl, it's not anything like what we grew up with. It's a personal relationship with the Lord. And maybe you're here this morning, and some friend reached out to you and told you about the Savior, and your life was forever changed. Maybe someone invited you because you were their friend, and they longed for you to find what they had found in Jesus Christ. This is really an illustration of that, of friendship evangelism, not coming out of a pulpit, but kind of a one-on-one -on -one kind of setting. One person, maybe a relative, a fellow student, a co-worker, a friend, bringing another person to Christ. So we read in verse 42, he brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, you are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which is translated Peter. You're Simon. By the way, the word Simon means shifty, vacillating, moody. And indeed, that was the case. His name fit this man with his impetuous personality. But Jesus said, I'm not going to call you Simon anymore. I'm going to call you Cephas. That's Aramaic for Peter, which means rock. Jesus saw men not simply for what they were, but for what they could become. And this one who is omniscient alone could speak prophetically of what he is going to become. And so he gives him a new name, knowing that he's going to find new life in Jesus Christ. Simon, I'm going to make you a man of granite. Now, we tend to see ourselves for what we are, but the Lord sees us for what we can become. And one of the reasons we're here this morning is not simply to worship Jesus Christ, but to feed on his word so that we can become all that he is destined for us to become. And that's what people need. They need hope. I spoke to a lady this week who's in such despair over two decades of just bad decisions. And I tried to offer her some hope I said, you can become a new person in Jesus Christ. You don't have to be this way anymore. You don't have to be stuck in your past and your rotten childhood. God can make you a brand new person in Jesus Christ. And so it all began here with Andrew, who befriends his brother, and he brought him to a Savior. Now there's still another model of how one is called, and it's seen in the calling of Philip. Look at verse 43. The next day... He, Jesus, purposed to go forth into Galilee, and he found Philip. And Jesus said to him, follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. 
John rescues Philip from total oblivion because only in his gospel is he mentioned outside of the lists of apostles. John mentions him at least on three other occasions. We'll see in chapter 6, chapter 12, and again in chapter 14. And so when the Lord calls Philip, he just spoke two words to him. Follow me. It's a command in the original. And of course, Philip has to decide how he's going to respond. Unlike pulpit evangelism, through the preaching of John that brought the conversion of John and Andrew, unlike a friendship evangelism where the calling of Peter is seen through the bringing of, uh, by the getting of Andrew, getting him to come, some people come through initiative evangelism, just way of life evangelism. Now, there's a lot of talk today of what we speak of friendship evangelism. And some Christians have gone way to the other end of the spectrum, and they are under this false impression that unless they build this long, protracted friendship with some co-worker, some neighbor, whatever, that they have no right to share the gospel with them. Nothing could be further from the truth. As far as we know, this is the first time the Lord met Philip. But he sensed here was a man who was open, and so he immediately invites him to follow. Hey, that's the way it is with some people. They're very, very open. I don't know why they use John 4 as an example of friendship evangelism with the woman at the well. He wasn't there two minutes with her before he began to share the gospel. One of the missionaries whom our church supports. The first time I met him on the college campus, I was waiting for an appointment. My appointment didn't show, and here was a student. We struck up a conversation, and I thought, man, this kid is searching. He is looking. And it was a divine appointment, and I ended up sharing the gospel with him. And he came to Christ, and for the last 19 years, he's been a missionary. And I thought, you know, this is a good example right here. Philip, the Lord is omniscient. Of course, he knows immediately where Philip is at. And he knows that he's open. And he just takes the initiative and he says, follow me. And of course, following Christ is always a true mark of conversion. That's really what faith is. The word faith means to trust and to depend on. But the word faith is not separated from a person. I like that, an acronym on faith, F-A-I-T-H. Forsaking all, I trust him. And some of you here this morning, you've not done that. Oh, you've joined a church. Maybe you started reading a Bible. Maybe you've begun to pray. But you know in your heart of hearts, you've not forsaken all. You've not abandoned yourself to embrace Christ. Many, many, many people today want the benefits of his cross, but they don't want him. But listen, you cannot dichotomize his person from his work. You cannot have him as Savior and spurn him as Lord. True conversion brings a changed life as seen in Philip. Philip understands, as we'll see by his testimony in a moment, that he is indeed the Messiah, the only one who can forgive sin. Which brings us to the fifth individual in our passage, the calling of Nathaniel. Now, Nathaniel's not an example of outright pulpit evangelism. He's not an example of friendship evangelism, not an example of initiative evangelism. He's a good example of what we call apologetic evangelism. Now, the Bible tells us in 1 Peter 3.15 to be ready to make a defense for the hope that is within you, yet with gentleness and reverence. To make a defense. 
to be ready to give an account for the hope that's within you with gentleness and reverence. Now, the word defense there is the Greek word apologia. We get our English word apology. Now, the word apology has a dual meaning in English. It can carry the me meaning, well, you know, I, I'm sorry, that's an apology. Or it carries the idea of a defense, like an apology that's presented in a court of law. Well, apologetics is not us saying I'm sorry for what we believe, but it's that branch of theology by which we defend the faith. If someone were to challenge your faith, would you be ready? Now, unfortunately, there's a lot of Christians who have a very shallow understanding of the Christian faith, and that's why the discovery class that you can start any week you want is so instrumental to giving you that grounding, that founding. But understand, apologetics is seen in the New Testament. It's not just proving things like the existence of God. Largely, it's taking the Scriptures and reasoning from the Scriptures that Jesus is indeed the Son of God, the Messiah, the only one who can save. Listen, you can believe the Bible is the Word of God, but what good is it if you can't use it? And so what we find here is an apologia in Nathanael's call. We read in verse 45, Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. That's an apologetic, and it's biblical. He's saying Jesus is the Messiah. He meets the requirements for Messiah found in the first five books in the rest of the Old Testament. Now, notice this man's scornful response. Nathanael said to him, Can any good thing come out of Nazareth? Philip said, said what Christ said. He said, Come and see. Now, it came as a shock to Nathanael to hear his friend to describe this newfound Messiah as Jesus of Nazareth. Because Nazareth was a city, it was a Roman garrison. It was a place that was packed with pagans, with Gentiles who were idolatrous. It was known as a city for being totally biblically illiterate. Uh, it lacks sophistication. They are viewed as the hicks. And the people, as the Gospels bring out, had a distinct coarseness in their dialect. And of course, the place lived up to its reputation. They were the first city to meet the public ministry of Christ with violence. When he preached in that place, they hated it. And they wanted to throw him over a cliff. And so it was a city that was also known for its vice and immorality. It would be like saying today, we have found Jesus of Las Vegas. <laughs> it's kind of a contradiction in terms. So Nathaniel, not out of pride or a love for sin, but out of a sincere and searching heart, he asked, can any good thing come out of Nazareth? And of course, Philip's response is like that of the Savior. Come and see. Now, Jesus does not rebuke Nathaniel because he recognizes this is not some smokescreen. Understand, some people throw questions at you not because they're searching and out of an honest heart want to know the truth. They just want to give you an excuse as to why they shouldn't believe. Not true with Nathaniel. He has an honest, sincere heart. And so Jesus, verse 47, saw Nathaniel coming to him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed in whom is no guile. Behold, an Israelite who's honest. He tells the truth. And in his honesty, he wonders if the Messiah could come out of Nazareth. Now, that in a way is um, an apologetic question. And it's not from a rebellious heart again, an honest heart. Notice, Nathaniel said, how do you know me? 
Jesus answered and said to him, Before Philip called you when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Jesus answered and said to him, Because I said to you that I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe you shall see greater things than these? And he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you shall see the heavens open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Now, this statement given by Christ is given to a Jew who knows the Old Testament. Christ meets people where they are. He deals with Nicodemus in John 3 differently than he deals with the Samaritan woman in John 4. Because Nicodemus is a teacher of the Scriptures, and he appeals to his knowledge of Scripture. And as you read this statement of, that he makes about the Lord Jesus Christ, first in verse 47 when he says, Behold, an Israelite in whom there is no guile. And then this statement in verse 51, it presupposes this man knew the Old Testament. Hold your finger here because this passage really won't make sense unless we go back to the Old Testament passage. Go to Genesis chapter 28, if you will. Genesis chapter 28. Now, many of us, especially as children, have sung that song, We are climbing Jacob's ladder, every rung goes higher, higher. But I wonder if many of us know where that comes from and what it really means. Well, what we find in these verses in this Old Testament text is an illustration of a man, namely Jacob, who needs to be converted to the Messiah. Let me set the context for you. Jacob, if you remember, had stolen his brother, his twin brother Esau's birthright, and by deception, he takes the family blessing. And finally, when the dad is dead, Esau is going to get his revenge. And Genesis 27, 41 tells us of the grudge he carried. And he says, I'm going to kill him. I'm going to kill him. And he meant it. And Jacob knew he meant it, so he gets out of Dodge. And he goes to a place called Luz. Look at verse 10. Then Jacob departed from Beersheba went toward Haran. And he came to a certain place and spent the night there because the sun had set. And he took one of the stones of the place and put it under his head and lay down in that place. Now, if you've ever been to Israel, one of the things that really impress you is all the stones. I mean, they're everywhere. Mountains of stones, valleys of stones, rivers of stone, everywhere you look. The Arabs joke that when Abriel was passing out the stones around the world, his bag ripped open and spilled all over Israel. But here's a man who takes one of these stones and he uses it for a pillow. Now, how many of you have to sleep with a pillow at night? Raise your hand. All right, well, Jacob's no difference. Here's old Pillowhead. He, he needs to get his head elevated to be able to sleep. And so the only thing he can find is a rock. And when you're this tired, just about anything will work. Remember, he's been fleeing from his brother. The adrenaline has been flowing, and as you study the geography, in one day, he traveled 50 miles. That is an incredible distance at this time in human history. And so he's desperate for a good night's sleep, and he uses a rock for a pillow. Now, uh, it's not by accident that the Lord appeals to this passage of Scripture, because it represents and typifies something. Understand, when you interpret the Bible, you need to first interpret in its historical grammatical context. You say, how do you know that? Because that's the way the men in the New Testament and the Lord Jesus himself interpret the Old Testament. Literally, historically, grammatically, and they interact with the Old Testament scriptures in that way. But occasionally, over and above the historical event that took place, there's a type. 
A type is an Old Testament illustration that is kind of like a picture of prophecy, something that God is going to do in the future. And there's a number of types that are referenced in the New Testament. And so there's this type here in Genesis 28 that foreshadows something that God is going to do later in human history. And of course, we know that because Jesus explains that to us, as we'll see in a moment, from John chapter 1. So nearly two millennia later, the Lord uses this historical event to speak to Nathaniel's heart. Don't miss it. By the way, Jesus said, the scriptures speak of me. Again, speaking of the Old Testament. All of the Old Testament is about the Lord Jesus. You'll find him either in the shadows or in the direct sunlight, but you will see him throughout the Old Testament. Now, this is a picture, Genesis 28, of a man who needs to be converted. We're told in verse 11, the sun had set, and that's literal, but beyond that, it's figurative because it's a picture of a lost man in sin. He's in the darkness, but the next day when the sun comes up, when it rises, he's a changed man. He's a new man. And it's a picture here of the darkness that every lost sinner is in until the light of Christ opens his eyes. Remember what Paul said to the Corinthians? The God of this world, speaking of the devil here with a small g, he has blinded the minds of the unbelieving that they might not see the light of the gospel. And so the Bible describes every lost man as being in darkness. And some people like that darkness because the darkness is more comfortable to them than the light. Jesus will tell us that in John 3:19. Ah, sometimes we smile at a child for being afraid of the darkness. But how much more ridiculous than a child afraid of the darkness is than a man who's afraid of the light? And before you and I were saved, we lived in darkness. And so we find this man, Jacob, shrouded in darkness, and he's surrounded by a desert. Luz means wilderness, separation. It's a desert, barren place. I've been to this place, and there's nothing here. I can imagine how he felt. Separated here in the wilderness, maybe a little homesick, fearful. He's in the darkness. He feels all alone. He's a picture of the man without God, without Christ, without hope, without heaven. He is just lost. Now, sometimes people say to me, oh, pastor, it's hard to be a Christian. Well, at times it is, but it's a whole lot harder to be lost. Solomon said the way of the transgressor is hard. It's as hard as the pillow that this man laid his head on. Now, I've never heard a, a born-again child of God say, oh, I have deep regrets that God has saved me. Or I have deep regrets that he has forgiven me of all of my sin and written my name in the Lamb's book of life. For that matter, I don't normally hear lost people say, oh, pastor, I want to tell you about the dear sweet devil that I serve. Uh-uh, uh-uh. Listen, if there were no heaven and no hell, and there is, but if there were no heaven and no hell, I would still want to be a Christian. If I had a thousand lives to live over, I'd want to be a born-again Christian. Why? Because the way of the transgressor is hard. If you enjoyed today's message, you can order a CD or DVD copy by calling Search the Scriptures at 877-787-7478 and requesting program John 004. One of the most difficult questions posed by both Christians and skeptics of Christianity is the question, what about those who have never heard the gospel of Jesus Christ? Well, Dr. Brogy answers that question biblically and clearly by explaining the justice of God, the lostness of mankind, and the incredible power of the gospel in his book, Are the Unevangelized Really Lost? 
you can receive your own copy with a donation of any amount to Search the Scriptures. Please call Search the Scriptures at 877-787-7478 to receive your copy today. We hope that you will join us tomorrow as we continue to Search the Scriptures.